Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe. It is Friday, July 29th, 2011. I um well well first I have a lot to be thankful for this this week. Christogenia is um in the top hundred thousand websites on Alexa, of course, it's been there for a while in, in the world. But it's also now in the top hundred thousand websites in the United States, which is to me an an accomplishment because only about sixty percent of Christogenia's traffic comes from the United States and, and I I praise Yahweh for that. That the um, it, it's not that I'm looking to be popular. My name isn't Eli James. I'm just looking to be effective. I, I understand that 99.9% of the people that visit Christogenia are going to hate it. But if I reach them all and and catch the attention of that 0.1%, then I'm being effective. I did an interview with – I'm sorry, it wasn't an interview. I, I did a um, a discussion um, and sort of a debate with Jim Condit, Jim Condit Jr. of Ohio, on Pro Thinks radio program last Wednesday. And, and um, I, I'm not – I don't – a lot of people think I profess to be an expert in, in World War II, and, and I've never made that profession. If you actually read the Mein Kampf site that I have – what you'll find is the only profession I make is one that, that states that I, I began the site so that I could invest, investigate and, and um, come to a conclusion concerning the truth in, in several areas surrounding World War II and Adolf Hitler, right? Because I do believe that Adolf Hitler was a sincere Christian and that he was fighting our fight. But I never professed to be an expert at World War II. And, and some people had that misimpression. I don't know where they got it from. I've done this um, long series of programs with Sword Brethren, and, and I probably know quite a bit in, in certain areas, but I'm no expert. I don't know much about the actual battles, the battle strategy. There's a lot in my reading in, in those areas that's lacking, and I know, I'm not the guy for that. I have no interest in – if I had an interest in it, I would know it. I have no interest in, in that. It, it's not important to my cause. And, and um, we none of us can be an expert in anything, and I chose to study primarily Greek and the Bible during the course of all my studies, and I still do. That's still my, my primary endeavor. Well, well, anyway, the bottom line is I'd like to thank ProSync for setting that up. I've had a lot of good feedback about my interview. Some people say I kicked Condit's ass, and so, some people are, are more reserved about that, including myself. And, and um, some people were, were very pleased with, with what I did and, and with what I said. And I got some neutral, uh, I got some neutral responses that were on my side, and, and I got some very positive responses. I'm going to post some of them on the Mindcom site this week. Um, as, as comments on the program, right? And, and that might be interesting. And, and it's also attracted a lot of um, new people to the Mindcom site. In fact, yesterday, and I don't really like to brag about my statistics, but yesterday, 423 people visited the Mindcom site. And, and that's the first time, well, it's the second day. The first day was Hitler's birthday last year. It, it's the second 
Well, well it, it's the second best the site's ever done. 427 people visited Christagenia yesterday, which is typical. So, so it's the mine comp site almost, almost passed up Christagenia. So I don't think it'll stay there, but, but, but it's because it's new people being drawn to the site because of ProSync's asking me to do that on. That, that discussion was Condit. Condit wants, well, well, he expressed a desire to discuss me, but with me religion. And, and I think if he does that, if he couldn't, um, overwhelm me discussing or, or debating Hitler in World War II, even though I'm not an expert in that area, he doesn't have a chance discussing um, Catholicism and Christianity with me, and, and I definitely challenge him to that discussion, and, and I hope we have it sometime in August. I'm going to um, speak to ProSync about that in a week or two. So, so that's what's happening at Christogeny.org. Um, aside from that, the, the, um, some of the sites may be down for a couple of hours at, at a time over the next week, and, and it'll only happen once, but, but Christogenia is moving to a larger server, well, which has actually been something I should have done three or four months ago, but, but the expense is, of course, restrictive, and I had to make sure that I could do it before I tried, right? So, so, but, but it's necessary because I'm out of space. As, aside from that, everything's going fine, and thank you for being here. This is, um, Matthew chapter 22. And among the things which we spoke about last week, it was demonstrated from the parable of the vineyard workers. And I'm going to stay on this topic for a long time. And from Leviticus, how hard it is for us to keep the letter of the law, especially in this day and age. And while Yahweh's eternal morals are encoded into the laws found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, as well as the entire Bible, we easily lose sight of several biblical truths. First, the law was created for the benefit of man. Man was not created for the sake of the law. Second, the Levitical laws were specifically given along with a priesthood to enforce them for the purposes of the Israelite kingdom and its function, its function and relationship to Yahweh, its God. When Israel was divorced from God for its constant unfaithfulness, the entire nation, being under the law, was liable to the judgment of the law, and therefore the entire nation was liable to death. Yahweh preserved the nation, as he had promised, according to his law, as he had promised, by dying on behalf of it. It's the only way he could avoid having to carry out that judgment against the children of Israel. And thereby he freed the nation from the law of its, or allegorically her, husband. That is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. Now, we live not under the law, but under favor, under the grace of our God. We are told that if we love him, we keep his commandments. Those commandments are not found in the letter of the hundreds of old Hebrew laws. They are found in the Ten Commandments, which encapsulate the spirit of the Hebrew law, 
along with the few things which the apostles clarified and the admonition by Christ to love our brethren. The law was our, the Israelite nation's, tutor for Christ, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 4. The Hebrew laws are our ideal, but since none of us can live in this world and strictly keep them, we judge not our brethren by them. This is proven over and over again in Paul and in the epistles from the other apostles and in the Gospels. It is a Catholic belief that so-called good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. We'll also see that was the belief of the Pharisees at the time of Christ. We will see that from the pages of Josephus. You want to know what the leaven of the Pharisees is. And of course, by the measure of the Romish church, it's the Romish church that would like to assign people to heaven and to hell, and not by the measure of God. That's a Catholic belief. Yet Christ told us that every sin would be forgiven of man. Every sin would be forgiven of man, except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which can be demonstrated to be purposeful violation of that separation which the race of Israel was to have from the non-Adamic and also from other disaffected Adamic peoples. Therefore, Jude, Paul, and the apostles in Acts chapter 15 all warned Israel against fornication, which Jude defines as the pursuit of different or strange, as the King James has it, flesh, and which the word, and which word, the, the Greek word for fornication, translated fornication, Paul used to describe the seduction of Israel by the Moabites, and so it clearly includes what we would call race mixing. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 45, verse 20, promises that all of the offspring of Israel shall be preserved without exception. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that all of the sins of Israel would be cleansed without exception. Therefore, the Apostle John tells us that if our seed is in us, in other words, if we are indeed children of Israel, that we cannot sin, because even if we do, we have an intercessor in Christ. Paul quotes David in Romans, where he tells us that blessed is the man to whom Yahweh will not impute sin whose sins are covered. The only way for those sins to be covered is to be one of the lost sheep of Israel whom Christ died for in the first place. Those who rely on justification by the law are in effect rejecting the mercy and the sacrifice of Christ. Paul spent over seven chapters in Romans and several in Galatians and his other epistles explaining this very thing. The other apostles and their epistles in several places fully agree. So while it is fruitful to know the law and to keep it, it is better to know that when we do sin, as the apostle John told us, we have an intercessor in Christ, and Christ said that every sin will be forgiven men except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is not a mistake that people who criticize me for this position on the law 
which is straight from the straight from the New Testament, and this position on the gospel, even though it is spelled out clearly in the Word of God, those people have pictures of friends that are clearly Negroes and Latinos and Ashkenazis on their Facebook and their business pages. That's not a mistake that they criticize me while they have those pictures and those friends. Christ said he would forgive man of all sin except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of sanctity which demands that the children of Israel be a separate people. My critics would make friends of all the other races and then boast that they should keep the whole law, criticizing me for recognizing the mercy of God that we Israelites have through Christ. How are my critics not as good as Jews? If they aren't Jews. There is a discourse in Romans chapter 2, which reads thus, from verse 17. But if you are called a Judean and depend on the, upon the law, and boast in Yahweh, and you know the purpose, and you scrutinize the things that differ being instructed from the law, of course, Paul's addressing Israelite Judeans and not Edomite Judeans. And had persuaded yourself to be a guide of the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the childish, having the semblance of knowledge and of truth in the law. Are you really teaching another, not teaching yourself? Proclaiming not to steal, do you steal? Declaring not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Loathing idols, do you commit sacrilege? You who boasts in the law, through transgression of the law, do you dishonor Yahweh? Indeed, the name of Yahweh through you is blasphemed among the nations, just as it is written. For circumcision indeed profits if you would practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcised should keep the judgments of the law, would his uncircumcision not be counted for circumcision? Then the uncircumcised from nature who is fulfilling the law shall judge you who through writing and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. First, if you claim justification from the law, that we are cleansed or damned by the law, then you would better be circumcised because the command to be circumcised is a part of the law which is apart from and which preceded the priestly rituals of the law which the law merely upheld. There is a greater message here in the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law was a part of the law itself, that the law would come to its end. But what is more important here is the lesson that keeping one law and seeking righteousness by that is to dishonor our God if we transgress any other law. Last week, in the parable of the vineyard workers, we saw that the workers were paid the very same evening 
to fulfill the law in Leviticus 19.13 that states thus, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. This is only one example of the Hebrew law that is commonly broken today. I would bet every one of us has broken it. That if one takes any goods or services from another, they must be paid for that very day. That's the law. Yet we all take many things each day, and we pay for them monthly. Your phone bill, your gas and light bill, your rent. They are goods and services. Your grocery bill, things you put on your credit card, which I don't have. You shouldn't have a credit card. It's usury. Or we pay for them at the arrival of a bill or an invoice, which comes in the mail days or weeks later. We've all done that. Paul said, every man getting himself circumcised, that he is obligated to do the entire law. James said, he should... He who should keep the whole law but would fail in one thing has become liable for all. If you seek righteousness in the law, you had better be keeping and professing the entire law without exception or you are a hypocrite. There is a certain individual who, along with some of his cohorts, has been insisting that those who are in marriages, meaning married by the unlawful standards of today, who did not initiate those marriages as virgins, must therefore terminate their conjugal relations, lest they face, as they said in their own words, eternal damnation. They profess this, although it is not the example that we have in Scripture. Rather, it is contrary the examples of scripture they are trying to uphold the letter of the law concerning marriages and virgins and in an even stricter manner than the law itself explicitly dictates since there's no explicit law that a woman must be a virgin when she gets married you won't see that in the law Yet when confronted with the laws concerning usury, one of the same individuals recently attested to me that God will tell him if he was right or wrong, and that it's no one else's business. So this individual pretends to be a teacher of one law, while he finds it, while he himself finds it permissible to flaunt others. What a fool. It is men like him whom Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 2 which I've just quoted, he is a hypocrite. I would pray that he repents. In the parable of the two sons at Matthew, chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, we see one son who cared not for his father's demands, but his conscience eventually weighed on him, and he followed them anyway. The other son professed 
to keep his father's demands, but he did not. Such are those who would profess to keep the law and then disregard the law. Christ himself concluded that whores would enter into the kingdom of heaven before such hypocrites would enter into it. And if whores can enter into the kingdom of heaven, who, therefore, can so confidently guarantee eternal damnation to those among us who have transgressed in such a manner? They are fools. As Paul also had to confront the Pharisees of his time, there are those who would like to say that this understanding of our relationship to the law under the new covenant is the promotion of sin. That charge leveled at Paul by the Judaizers is ridiculous. To that, Paul answered in Romans chapter 3, do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. And in Romans chapter 6, he said, now what may we say? Shall we continue in fault that favor would be greater? Certainly not. Each who professes to be a Christian seeks voluntarily to establish the law. The law is written in his heart by God. The Ten Commandments and the admonition to love our brother, which Christ made, every time he was asked which commandments, they're the ones he gave. But a Christian does not condemn his brother by the law. Because Joshua Christ himself, as he has stated, is not going to condemn the children of Israel by the law. How could you, being his servant, hold your fellow servant to a stricter standard than he will hold that servant? You have a problem. Therefore, James says in chapter 4 of his epistle, Do not slander one another, brethren. He slandering a brother or condemning his brother slanders the law and condemns the law. Now, if you condemn the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Now, who are you who is judging him who is near to you? Paul stated in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the justice of Yahweh is made known, as attested by the law and the prophets. But justice of Yahweh through the faith of Joshua Christ for all of those, for all of those Israelites, who are believing. For there is no distinction, for all have done wrong and fall short of the honor of Yahweh, being freely accepted by his favor. Through the redemption that is at the hands of Christ Yahshua, whom Yahweh set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood for a display of his justice by the means of the pretermission of forthcoming errors, not past, as the King James has it. And that could be proven, my interpretation can be proven by the meaning of the Greek word and by statements in the first epistle of John. That even if we do sin, speaking of the future, we have an intercessor in Christ. 
by the tolerance of Yahweh for the display of his justice in the present time. For he is just and is accepting of him that is from the faith of Yahshua. Of course, Paul explains in Romans chapter 4 that such belief, that such faith is the belief which Abraham had, that his offspring would become many nations, and that promise was carried down through Jacob, Israel. That's the faith Paul means. That's the faith Paul defines in Romans chapter 4. Those who seek righteousness in the law and who reject the immutable promises of salvation, who deny that cleansing which was granted to all of the offspring of the children of Israel, they really do prove themselves to be Jews or no better than Jews. I do not disagree with these fools over the content and importance of the moral laws of God. I do disagree with them over the implications for us when we who are weak fail to keep them to the letter. The Jews face eternal damnation. There is no damnation for the children of Israel, period. Other non-Adamic peoples are not even a part of the picture, nor will they be in the kingdom to come. And that's because, as Joshua Christ said in John 3, chapter, verse, John chapter 3, verse 3, unless you're born from above, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Not even from Mexico. Matthew chapter 22. And responding, Joshua again spoke in parables to them, saying, The kingdom of of the heavens, that's the Greek, may be compared to a man who is king, who has made a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, and they did not wish to come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell me, tell those who were invited, Behold, my dinner is prepared. My bulls and fatlings are sacrificed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they, being uncaring, departed. Indeed, one to his own farm, and another to his business. These are the apostates in Judea. Verse 6. But the rest... And let me know that this intends those who have killed all the prophets from the time of Abel. But the rest, seizing his servants, assaulted and killed them. And the king, being angered and sending his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. The destruction of Jerusalem, 70 AD. I'm sorry, burned their city. Then he says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were, who were invited were not worthy, those who claimed to be Judeans. Therefore, go along the outlets of the roads, and as many as you should find, invite to the wedding feast. And those servants, having gone out into the roads, gathered all whom they found, both the wicked and the good, 
and the wedding feast had been filled with those dining. These are the blind Israelites of the dispersion, who by the time of Christ had already come to dominate the inhabited world. Verse 11. Then the king, upon entering to observe those dining, saw there a man not clothed in a wedding garment. And he says to him, friend, how have you entered into here not having a wedding garment? Evidently, this is one of the tares among the wheat. But he was silent. Then the king said to the servants, binding his hands and feet, cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. I may interject that many are called by man, but few are chosen by God. Israel, only Israel, is both called and chosen. There are those who want to say that the wedding garment is one's character, or that it somehow is spiritual. If it is any of these, or anything similar, then all of those commentators attest that such things can be noticed on sight, although they themselves would also protest that remark. In spite of the fact that when Yahshua first laid his eyes on Nathanael, as we see in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 41, he says about Nathanael, Look, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. It's a little before verse 41. The guests who did not wish to come were the people of Judea who had the law and the prophets and who should have known what time it was, that Yahshua was indeed that Messiah promised by so many Old Testament prophecies. It is demonstrable that many people did know that his coming had arrived or, at least, that it was imminent. We have the proofs in, in the Magi, the story of Magi at his birth, the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who said that she knew Messiah was coming, and especially in the apostles themselves, where we find in John chapter 1, this is at 141, that Andreas, the brother of Simon Peter, explained to him that, quote, we have found the Messiah. Yet, these people of Judea should have known, and they should have embraced him, and they did not. They were either uncaring, as we see described here, or some of them even actively opposed to the Messiah, as those who had seized and killed his servants, whom he sent to announce his wedding feast. For all of this, the king being angered and sending his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned their city, which forebodes the destruction of Jerusalem, which at that time was still to come. And notice that the uncaring, those who would attend to their own business rather than to the business of their king, they are judged along with the wicked who actually actively opposed that king. The man tells his servants to go 
to get anybody that they can, taking them right off the streets to bring them into the wedding feast. This is exactly what our modern-day mainstream sects have done with Christianity. It is evident that this parable is a prophetic parable. Now, we must understand this parable in the context of the Old Testament prophets and not as the mainstream cults would interpret it in spite of the Old Testament prophet context. The Old Testament prophets, such as Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel at chapter 34, or Isaiah at chapters 54 or 66, or Micah at chapter 4, or Hosea at chapter 2, in addition to those, there are many other places, and all of them tell about the dispersion of God's people Israel and their later return to him, ostensibly through Christianity. And his regathering of them and of them only. Yet, as can also be told in Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50, the parable of the net, Christ himself foresaw universalism. Universalism was prophesied. And for that reason, there are wicked among the just. There are wolves among the sheep. But the parable of the net, like several other parables, tells us that the wicked and the just, they're not believers and unbelievers. They're kinds or races. They're not even individuals. They are kinds or races, and that the bad kind or race, the Greek word being genos, the bad kind are taken and burned in the fire, and only the good kind are preserved. After his servants had gathered all of these people, none of whom could possibly have been prepared for attendance at a wedding, there was a man found who did not have a wedding garment. Now, some people would claim that the host had responsibility to provide a garment. If that were the case, the king would have scolded the servants for not providing a garment for this man. If that were the case, the man would have insisted that he was compelled to attend this wedding by the servants, and he may have given an answer. However, this man was silent. He had nothing to say. He had no excuse. And the king recognized this man's lack of a garment on sight, even though all of the guests had been hurried into the wedding under the same circumstances. The wedding garment could only be his skin. There's nothing else that it can be. It was recognized on sight. The wedding garment could only be indicative of the fact that he was not of the good kind of fish. In the parable, he is only one man, but he serves as our example. 
The man's hands and feet were bound. He was cast into the outer darkness. There shall indeed be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I must also add that any day and every day is a nice day for a white wedding. In the end, only the children of Israel will have white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, because according to the law and the prophets, his salvation is promised to them and to them alone. While it is indeed evident that this parable allegorically describes the as-yet-future wedding feast of the Lamb, the remarriage of Yahshua, who is Yahweh in the flesh, to Israel as promised in the prophets. Many people may make the errant assumption that if Israel is the bride, then the other races must be the guests invited to the wedding feast. This is a foolish and sophistic argument which does not hold up the scripture. Revelation chapters 19 and 21 describe the wedding feast of the Lamb. The picture drawn in those chapters, understood in the context of parallel prophecies found in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and elsewhere, is quite different. In Revelation chapter 19, we see that fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, Yahweh's sanctified ones, which in the context of Scripture can again only describe the children of Israel. All others, those who have opposed him, those Jeremiah 31 beasts, which are also that Ezekiel 38 army, which has surrounded and sought to mix in and sought to destroy the children of Israel, the Mexicans, the Chinese, the Africans, they shall all go into the lake of fire, as we are told in the Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, we then see that the bride is the city which represents the nation of Israel and not each particular individual. Israelites, as individuals, are not the brides of Yahweh. Israelites, as a collective nation, are. On the gates of that city are written the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. We are told explicitly that the bride is the city representing the nation. Nobody else but Israel will ever enter into that city. Those outside, we are told, shall have their part in the lake, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So if you're not inside the city, you're going into the lake of fire. If you're a Mexican, you're not going back to Mexico, Eli James. You're going outside the city. Those outside the city are going into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is not a town in Baja. Which is the second death. For a time, I myself imagined that that may include those of the children of Israel who are unrepentant. But now I realize that position was an error. And I cannot imagine how any of the children of Israel could possibly be unrepentant upon looking their God, Judge, and Father, and Creator in the face. 
As Paul said of the unrepentant sinner, deliver such a one unto the adversary for destruction of the flesh. In other words, put him out of the community so that he is exposed to the enemies of Christ, which was true when Paul wrote, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Yahshua. 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. That's the wedding feast of the Lamb. If you don't have the right garment, you're going outside the walls. You're going cast into the outer darkness. And if you're outside the walls of the city, as it states in Revelation chapter 21, you're going into the lake of fire. That is your fate. That is the gospel of God. I will never be ashamed of it. It's very unfortunate that certain people in Christian identity are ashamed of it and have to invent lies. They make themselves Catholics. Catholic identity. That just doesn't wash. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then going, the Pharisees took counsel that may, they may entrap him in speech. There is no doubt that when a man's words are righteous, that they are consistent. And they are consistent with the word of God. But it is a method of the Pharisees to take the word of God out of context. Or also to take a man's word out of, a man's words out of context. And then to condemn men by their own measure, which they create by abusing that context. Christ showed the Pharisees again and again that they did not truly understand the word of God. And yet, instead of seeking to understand him, they hardened their hearts and sought a reason to destroy him. The Pharisees are still at it today. They do the same things today. Verse 16. And they sent to him their students with those of the partisans of Herod, which may have been Sadducees since the high priests of the day were also Sadducees. However, at this time, the high priests, according to Josephus, were appointed by the Romans and not by Herod. And they sent to him their high priests with those of the partisans of Herod, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and in the way of God you teach in truth, and in you there is no thought for anyone. For you do not look at the stature of men. The stature or the status of men. I know that King James has persons here. This word, the Greek word prosopon, reflects that same idea which Paul often writes to, refers to where the King James Version translates a certain Greek word, prosopolampsia, and related words and phrases as respective persons. Prosopolampsia is literally, it is a word which literally means the receiving of a man's appearance. Here we have prosopon, the King James translated it, person 
and it could be translated appearance or stature or status. And we will see that that is what it means. First, I'd like to quote 2 Chronicles 19.7. Wherefore now let the fear of Yahweh be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with Yahweh our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. And that should be respect of the status of persons. Proverbs 24.23. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. Romans 2.11. But there is no respect of persons with God. Oh, the universalists love to quote that one. It should be, there is no respect of the status of persons with God. 1 Samuel 16.7 But Yahweh said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For Yahweh seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looketh on the heart. So we see what respect of persons means. Many commentators confuse the idea of respect of persons with the idea of race, thereby seeking to surreptitiously include non-Israelites into the covenants of God, something which cannot ever be done under any circumstances. The same Paul who said that, indeed, the favor and the calling of Yahweh are not to be repented of, meaning they cannot be retracted or modified, Romans 11.29. That same Paul also added that, Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers, all of which include only Israel, Romans chapter 15, verse 8. James, so we see that Paul's theology was Absolutely exclusive, right? James, in the second chapter of his epistle, he clarifies the term respective persons for us, where he says, and I quote, verse 1, My brethren, do not with respect, in my translation, it's respect of the stature of persons. In the King James, it's simply respective persons. Do not with respect of the stature of persons hold the faith of our Prince Yahshua Christ of honor. For if perhaps a man should enter into your assembly hall with a gold ring and a shining garment, and a beggar should enter in a filthy garment, then you should look upon he wearing the shining garment and say, You sit here comfortably, and to the beggar you should say, You stand there, or sit beneath my footstool, in other words, on the floor. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges of evil reasonings? Listen, my beloved, has Yahweh not chosen the beggars in society to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But do you dishonor the beggar? Do the wealthy not exercise power over you, and they themselves drag you into trial? Of course they do. Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name labeled upon you? So we see here that it is clearly evident that this term, respected persons, has only to do with the status of a man 
who in any case already deserves a place in the assembly. And one cannot attempt to force other races into the assembly by it, because that is an abuse of the meaning of the term and a clear violation of the covenants of God, which cannot be amended by men. Verse 17. Therefore tell us, what do you suppose? Is it lawful to give the tax to Caesar or not? And Yahshua, knowing their wickedness, said, Why do you try me, hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they presented to him a denarian. And he says to them, Whose image and inscription is it? They say to him, Caesar's. Then he says to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things of Caesar, and to Yahweh the things of Yahweh. And hearing it, they marveled, and leaving him, they departed. So many people, even in Christian identity, simply cannot accept the precepts found in this passage. Yes, the taxes of imperialistic tyrannies are oppressive, there's no doubt. In many ways, imperial Rome was far more oppressive than imperial America is at this current day. But if you open your wallet and look at the bills it contains, they are all inscribed Federal Reserve Note. Therefore, in reality, they belong to the Federal Reserve. They belong to the Jewish bankers whom our fathers were foolish enough to grant such privileges as the ability to have them printed and put into circulation. So you pay your taxes. A Christian must realize that if he is blessed with having money, it will become a curse to him if he does not do right by his blessing. We cannot serve both God and mammon or riches. Therefore, we should have no care for riches. Money comes and money goes. And there are times when we need it. And when we need it, we use it. But when we are attached to the material world and the riches of this world, we care too much for our money or for the Jews' money. Likewise, in Matthew chapter 6, Yahshua said, For this reason I say to you, do not care for your life what you should eat or what you should drink, nor for your body what you should wear. Is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of heaven that they do not sow nor harvest nor gather into storehouses, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than them? Who caring among you is able to add one cubit to his stature? And what do you care about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil nor spin yarn. But I say to you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed as one of these. Now if the grass of the field exists today, and tomorrow it is cast into a furnace, Yahweh clothes thusly, how much more you, you of little faith, Therefore, you should not have care saying, what should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? 
For all these things the heavens seek after. I'm sorry, the heathens seek after. Indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, you should not have care for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall care for itself. Sufficient for the day are its vices. So we're in a position in the world again today where we are in a state of tyranny. We're in that state of tyranny where even though me, we, even though we, even though 100,000 of us may be awake, even though 100,000 of us may abide by the laws of God and seek to do his will, that 100,000 is still going to be punished or suffer for the sake of the 100 million of us that are still asleep. That's just the way it is. Sometimes the blessing of having your eyes opened seems like a curse, but it's not. We're called early to the harvest. So we are those poor schmucks. I hate to use that word, but that's the best way I could describe it. They got hired at 6 a.m. and have to work all day. Look at it that way. And and hope you get the same denarion as those people that wake up 10 years from now or, or 20. That's all I could say. It, it Sometimes it hurts having your eyes open to what's going on around you. Sometimes it really seems that ignorance is bliss. You know the government's oppressive. You know it's a tyranny. You know that the money system is unjust. But pay your taxes. I've been to federal prison. It's not fun. And you aren't doing your brethren a damn bit of good sitting in federal prison. That's why Christians have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And let him worry about it. He can handle it. That's a matter of faith. A lot of people criticize me for holding that position, but that is the simple truth of Scripture. Verse 23, in that day Sadducees came forth to him, saying there is not to be a resurrection, and questioning him. At this point, it may be neat to see in detail the beliefs of the Sadducees, and even to contrast some of the beliefs of the Pharisees. Although I won't discuss the Pharisees at great length presently, from the pages of Josephus, the historian, and then from statements which appear in the book of Acts, we will see what the Pharisees believed. And that will lend us much understanding into this discourse which they had with Christ. From Josephus's Antiquities of the Judeans, chapter 13, line 173. And for the Sadducees, they take away fate. And Josephus means fate in the godly sense, predestination. And say there is no such thing, and that the events of human affairs are not at its disposal. But they suppose that all of our actions are in our own power, so that we are, so that we 
are ourselves the causes of what is good and receive what is evil from our own folly. However, I have given a more exact account of these opinions in the second book of the Judean War. And I will cover that in a minute. Now, Antiquities, Book 18, Lines 12 through 17, where Joseph is, is actually describing all of the four sects of the Judeans, the four major sects. And yes, there were four, not three. Now for the Pharisees, they live lowly and despise delicacies in diet, and they follow the conduct of reason. And what that prescribes to them as and what that prescribes to them as being good for them, they do. And they think they ought earnestly to strive to observe reason's dictates for practice. This seems to me to be a glimpse of humanism. They also pay a respect to such as are in years, their elders, nor are they so bold as to oppose them in anything which they have introduced. And when they determine that all things are done by fate, they do not take away the freedom from men of acting as they think fit, since their notion is that it is please God to make a temperament whereby what he wills is done, but so that the will of man can act virtuously or viciously. They also believe that souls have an immortal rigor in them, and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life, and the later are to be detained in an everlasting prison but that the former, those who live virtuously, shall have power to revive and live again. And I must interject that here we see the Catholic ideas of punishment and reward and where they originated. They originated with the Pharisees. On account of which doctrines, and, and there may be others that had them before the Pharisees, but the Pharisees brought them into the Christian era, right? On account of which doctrines, they are able to greatly persuade the body of the people, just like the Catholic Church did later. And whatever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices, they perform them according to their direction, insomuch that the cities give great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourses also. So we see a little about the Pharisees, who did not have it all wrong, although it is clear from the gospel that they made many errors. Let me say that the, the um, idea that Eli James has of throwing Israelites into the lake of fire, that idea is part of the leaven of the Pharisees, and this passage from Josephus proves that. Where Christ says that all of the sins of the Israelites will be cleansed. All of them will be forgiven. But the doctrine of the Sadducees is this. Still quoting Josephus, of course. That souls die with the bodies. Understanding this, 
we now have an understanding of Christ's interaction with them, as is recorded in the Gospel. Now back to Josephus. Nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoins them. And I must say that today's equivalent is perhaps the expression, I cannot attend your Thanksgiving feast because it is not in the law that we should have such a feast. As if an additional day with your kin is a day spent in error, it is not. Back to Josephus. For they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. But this doctrine is received but by a few, yet by those still of the greatest dignity. And I must add that the Sadducees were the party of the wealthy, those of the greatest dignity, right? But they are able to do almost nothing by themselves. And I must add that Josephus is saying that there were not enough of them to administer a government alone. Now back to Josephus. For when they become magistrates, as they are unwillingly and by force sometimes obliged to be, they addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees, because the multitude would not otherwise bear them. In other words, there was not enough of them to force their convoluted opinions on the majority since the Sadducees were the high priests at the time of the Passion of Christ. And understanding that the Sadducees, even though they were the high priests, they, as Josephus tells us, weren't powerful enough in number to force their opinions on the other people, the Pharisees and, and the other people of Judea. Understanding this is important when it comes to scrutinizing who should bear the responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ. Josephus tells us the Sadducees couldn't, even though they were the high priests, they couldn't influence others because their numbers were not were very small. They couldn't influence the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were always arguing with each other. So the Pharisees also must have had a great burden of the responsibility in the crucifixion, is what I'm trying to say. Josephus went on to describe the Essenes, who seemed in many ways to most closely represent the true path of the spirit of the word of God and the common and simple people of Judea, But they also had some errors, and he also described the fourth sect, a very vehemently anti-Roman sect, founded by Judas the Galilean some decades before the time of Christ. I am convinced that it is this fourth sect which was responsible for what has become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that is a topic for another time. Now to quote from Josephus. Wars of the Judeans, chapter 2, lines 164 to 166. But the Sadducees are those who compose the second order. He had just described the Pharisees before them. And they take fate away entirely and suppose that God is not concerned in our doing or not doing what is evil. And they say that to Act what is good or what is evil is men's own choice. 
and that the one or the other belongs so to everyone that they may act as they please. They also take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades, which the Pharisees held, right? Moreover, the Pharisees are friendly one to one another and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public, but the behavior of the Sadducees, one toward another, is in some degree wild, and their conduct with those who are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. And this is what I had to say concerning the philosophic sects among the Judeans. So we see enough about the Sadducees to, to determine that they're practically atheists. They reject everything of the spirit, that they reject the, um, the hand of God in the world. And, and we also see that both the Pharisees and Sadducees believe that each individual man has a choice of whether to be good or evil, what, where Yahweh tells us that it's basically genealogy that determines whether he finds us good or evil. Acts 5.17 shows that the high priests at the time, who were also the high priests who condemned Christ, were of the Sadducees, where it says, Then stood up the high priest and all those with him being of the sect of the Sadducees filled with jealousy. And again, it is, however, obvious from the testimony of Josephus that the Sadducees would not have had the ability to condemn Christ, even though they were the high priests, if it were not for the approval of at least many of the Pharisees. At, at Acts chapter 23, we see that Paul was able to cause strife and division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the council by loudly asserting that he was being tried for contention over the resurrection of the dead. And Acts 23, verse 8 states, For indeed the Sadducees say that there is not to be a resurrection, nor are there angels, nor a spirit. But Pharisees confess both things, meaning angels and spirits and, and the resurrection. Now that we have a fuller understanding of the beliefs held by the Sadducees, and to some degree by the Pharisees also, it may be evident why Yahshua is never found consorting with Sadducees. They are just plain God deniers. While there are times when he did consort with the Pharisees, evidently many Pharisees were indeed redeemable Israelites. And they were. While the Sadducees were absolutely beyond redemption. But here it is described that they accosted him in order to entrap him. Back to verse 23. In that day, Sadducees came forth to him, saying, There is not to be a resurrection, and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if one should die not having children, his brother shall join in marriage to his wife, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers, and the first being married had died, and not having offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, also the second and the third, unto the seventh. Then the wife died after them all. Therefore, in the resurrection, of which of the seven shall the wife be? For they all had her. The Pharisees attempt to take advantage of the law found at Deuteronomy 25.5. 
because they think that they can use it to entrap Christ. It states that if brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without, meaning outside, unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. But those who disbelieve the possibility of the resurrection to the kingdom of Yahweh, how could they ever properly understand the kingdom of Yahweh? Like the Pharisees, we will see that neither did the Sadducees know the scripture. Verse 29. And replying, Yahshua said to them, Are you deceived, not knowing the writings, nor the power of Yahweh? For in the resurrection, they neither marry, nor do they give in marriage, but are like the messengers or angels in heaven. Yet nowhere, at least nowhere that I can find, in the Old Testament as we know it today, can this be found in Scripture. However, there is a place where it is found. In writings that the Dead Sea Scrolls help us to prove that at least a large portion of them, as we know them now, were indeed extant, read, and accepted in Judea at the very time of Christ, and which the apostles themselves both quoted from directly or alluded to frequently in their epistles. And those writings are contained in the book known to us as One Enoch. Here I shall quote from One Enoch, chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, from the translation by R.H. Charles. Verse 1. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice. And go, say to the watchers of heaven, who have sent thee to intercede for them, you should intercede for men and not men for you. Wherefore have you left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and laid with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken to yourselves wives? And done like the children of earth, and begotten giants as your sons. And though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women, and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as the children of men have lusted after flesh and blood, as those also who do die and perish. Therefore have I given them wives also that not that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, that thus nothing might be wanting to them on the earth. But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life, and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore, I have not appointed wives for you. For as for the spiritual ones of the heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh, shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. 
Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men, and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. Now we must be careful with the Enochic literature, especially since we have only a few copies of fragments that can be shown to be of great antiquity, which are those found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and also because one Enoch is not even a single book, but separate, several separate books which were written at diverse times and concatenated at a much later time. Yet here it is clear as to what Christ was referring to. The angels in heaven do not cohabit and multiply, even though they obviously have the ability and once made a conscious decision to use that ability on earth, which led to sin, because they were not supposed to do what they did, cohabiting with the daughters of Adam. The same events which were described in Genesis chapter 6, although our biblical records there also have some imperfections. Here, according to the words of Christ, it is evident that those of the resurrection may also have that ability, as the angels do, but will not use it. And here it may also be argued that Adam and Eve were indeed virgins in their own pre-fallen state, which other scriptures indeed demonstrate. Verse 31. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by Yahweh, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And the crowds hearing were astonished by his teaching. The response by Christ is also attested to in the Gospel of Mark. Yahweh professes to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob in Exodus chapter 3 at verses 6 and 15. We have seen from Josephus that the Sadducees believed that the soul died along with the body. Here we see, according to Christ, of course, that they were wrong. If Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if Yahweh is not the God of the dead, but of the living, it naturally follows that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead, but living, and living in the spirit. We will not find it expressed in this manner, as Christ said, that Yahweh is not the God of the dead, but of the living, in the Old Testament as we know it again. Yet we do find similar statements in certain apocryphal books, such as 4 Maccabees, which I will quote here. 4 Maccabees, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, from the Greek, my own translation. But they who have sought for piety with all their hearts... These alone are able to master the emotions of the flesh. They who believe in God do 
not die, meaning of the children of Adam, of course. Likewise, neither do our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, for they live with God. 4 Maccabees 16.25. Again, my own translation. And then they also saw this, that they who die on account of God, they live with God, just as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the patriarchs. So also we have the event which we've seen in Matthew, known as the Transfiguration on the Mount, which shows us this same thing. And the profession by Enoch, which the Apostle Jude quoted, that behold, Yahweh comes with ten thousands of his saints. Yet those who are not of us do not have that spirit. And these are those who are, as Jude calls them, twice dead. And they have no hope ever to see the kingdom of heaven, as Christ explains in John chapter 3, because they are not born from above. We have life, and our race has always believed this. Every branch of our race has believed this long before the time of Christ, long before 4 Maccabees. We have life because we have that spirit which is from of heaven which Yahweh imparted to Adamic man, and which, according to Paul's enigmatic description in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and according to John in the third chapter of his first epistle, is a part of our genetic heritage, which is what distinguishes us as being born from above. If one is born from above, he cannot die in a spirit, because he has that spirit of the Almighty God within him. That treasure which we have in earthen vessels, which Paul also talked about, which is our real life. Verse 34. Then the Pharisees, hearing that he had silenced the Sadducees, gathered together at that same place. And one from among them, a lawyer, making trial, questioned him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is thusly, You shall love him near to you as yourself. By these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you keep the commandments, if you truly seek to do these two simple things, then you cannot righteously be accused by men of breaking the law of God. And if you are not violating these basic precepts, then you are evidently keeping his commandments, and no Pharisee, either ancient or modern day, can possibly judge you with any righteousness. If you love your brother, you will not steal his goods, harm his children, or sleep with his wife. Neither will you lie to him about eternal damnation. Neither will you seek to rule over him with the letter of the Old Testament law, as the Pharisees seek to do. And here, and in chapter 23, which we'll cover next week, Joshua consistently scolds them for it. Verse 41. Then upon the Pharisees gathering together, 
Yahshua questioned them, saying, What do you think concerning the Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him, That of David. He says to them, Then how does David by the Spirit call him master, saying, Yahweh has said to my master, Sit at my right hand, until when I should place your enemies beneath your feet. So if David calls him master, how is he his son? First, let me talk about my translation there a minute, right? Yahweh, or the Lord in the King James, has said to my master, or to my Lord in the King James. The first occurrence of the word Lord, if we go back and check the psalm in the Hebrew, we go back and check the psalm that this is quoted from, we will find that the first occurrence of the word Lord comes from Strong's number 3068, and that is the word, that is the tetragrammaton, which stands for the name Yahweh. The second occurrence of the word Lord in the King James, in the Psalm, in the Hebrew, comes from the Strong's number 113, and that's the word Adon, and that's simply a title for Lord. That's all it is, it's, it's a title. And, and Adon, I believe, is an aside, is the word which provides for us not only the Greek Adonis, but the Germanic word Odin. If David calls him master or lord, how is he his son? This is a Christian paradox. Joshua Christ is Yahweh, having come in the form of a man. He is the father, and he is the son. And that is the only way in which he could be both David's descendant and David's master. That doesn't leave room for a trinity, because the two are one. It is two manifestations of the same being. The Holy Spirit is a third manifestation, but the rock in the desert is a fourth manifestation. And the pillar of smoke is a fifth, and the pillar of fire is a sixth. And the burning bush is the seventh. The force in the Ark of the Covenant is an eighth. So the Trinity is a ridiculous concept. It's pagan in origin. It's not Christian. Yahweh told Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I will be whatever I will be. He didn't say, I am what I am. That's Popeye, not, not God. He said, I am whatever I will be. It is a Christian paradox to understand that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh having come in the form of, of a man. He is the Father and he is the Son. And that is the only way in which he could be both David's descendant and David's ancestor. David's master. That is the only way, as the Revelation attests, where it also agrees with the prophets, that he could be both the root and the offspring of David, which we see at Revelation 5.5 5 and at Revelation 22.16. It is the only way he could be the future root of Jesse, long after Jesse had departed this world, as we see in Isaiah 11.10, quoted by Paul in Romans 15.12. That is the only way that he could claim to have been the planter of the wheat 
in the parable of the wheat and the tares, because that happened back in the garden. That is the only way that Paul could have asserted that the rock in the desert, which followed the Israelites of the Exodus, was indeed Christ himself, 1 Corinthians 10, 4. The Pharisees obviously did not understand this, and therefore they could not respond. The Dead Sea Scrolls version of Isaiah agrees with the Masoretic text, where it reads in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So the Pharisees were without excuse. They should have known these things. Matthew 22, verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone venture from that day to question him any longer. They gave up trying to entrap him. Rather, later they would seek false witnesses against him, taking his words out of context so that they could make accusations against him, just like Nuremberg, right? Today's Pharisees operate in the same manner. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I will be back next Friday with Matthew chapter 23, Yahweh willing. I will have a Christagenia open forum on Monday night at 9 p.m. on the, on the Christagenia.net TeamSpeak server. And, and um, if you haven't been there, I would encourage you to try it out. I think this Monday I might talk about um, Pharmakaya from my papers written on that topic on the Christagenia discussion, discussion page and about healing. I believe I will talk about healing this week. Yahweh willing. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. Good night.